the record now. So hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here. Hey, Stephanie. I'm super psyched to be here as well. So I actually met you, you might not remember, the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, and you were giving a talk about backyard wildlife, and you were also signing your book, which is Attracting Birds, Butterflies, and Other Backyard Wildlife, and it's, it's a, a Backyard Wildlife Month, is that correct? That's right, yeah. So every May, the National Wildlife Federation designates the entire month as Garden for Wildlife Month. And it's basically, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a campaign that we do, an awareness campaign to, you know, get people thinking about, you know, the fact that we can make a big difference for lots of different kinds of wildlife species just by how we choose to maintain our own piece of the earth. You know, every day is Earth Day. We celebrate Earth Day in April. Well, May is Garden for Wildlife Month. And it ties with our, into our, our entire Garden for Wildlife movement that we launched back in 1973. So, that's what my book is about. That's what the National Wildlife Federation's Garden for Wildlife program is all about. So we can talk about that if you like. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. 1973. That's a long time that's been in place. I think of when I think of like backyards as habitat, I feel like that's more of a newer concept or or maybe just like being in graduate school. I felt like I always we always talked about like these faraway places. And then more recently, urban ecology has gotten a lot of attention. So I'm so glad you're bringing attention to this issue. Yeah, it's so funny you say that because... Well, again, the National Wildlife Federation has been working in this space, this urban ecology space, this quote unquote backyard habitat. And that's actually what the name of our program was originally. And, you know, again, for, for almost 50 years at this point, right? Wow. But you're absolutely 100% spot on with the observation that it seems like maybe it's a newer thing. I can't tell you how, how all the frustration that I have had over the years working in wildlife conservation, and even with my colleagues sometimes, you know, at, at the National Wildlife Federation, where, you know, they kind of would write off this idea of, yeah. of quote unquote backyard habitat. Oh, that's like, plant some pretty flowers, you know, oh, that's really cute, but it's not really wildlife conservation. And so I have been, you know, sort of, you know, getting on my soapbox about that for a long time. I've been with the Federation for, uh, it'll be 21 years this summer. Oh, wow. and, and it's really great. I have observed the same thing that, in the last, I would say, five to 10 years, mm -hmm. it's beginning to get a little bit more traction, both with the public, but also in the, in the you know, sort of the scientific science community within wildlife conservation that, oh yeah, you know what, actually, we, it's not even feasible to stop the wildlife decline that we're seeing just mm -hmm. by focusing on wilderness areas, right? This idea that the land and the spaces that human beings dominate is actually viable habitat or could be for a lot of different species is beginning to sort of take a little bit more hold, which just makes me really happy. Yeah, exactly. And I, I worked in a more urban ecology lab just by nature of our project, not necessarily that was our lab's focus. So I started seeing more and more papers and maybe it's because I was, you know, focusing more on urban ecology, but it's really cool to see scientific papers assessing like how backyards or other um, little public green spaces can help wildlife. So can you give us some, some examples of like, do you, can you tell us about some studies that have shown some really cool effects about backyards? Sure. Yeah. And, and I, I want to call out just that term backyard habitat. Now, I mentioned that that's what the <laughs> National Wildlife Federation's program was originally called. We called it the Backyard Wildlife Habitat Program. Mm -hmm. And we launched it in um, the spring 1973 issue of National Wildlife Magazine. And, you know, that's what the program was called for many years. And it's, it's you know, like when I wrote my book that you just mentioned back in 2004, the, the, the TV network Animal Planet turned the book into a makeover series. And so that's how I found myself, you know, being a TV host and, you know, getting in front of the TV cameras and, and, and doing all this stuff. And that show was actually called Backyard Habitat. But here's the thing that we found. It was that it was a little bit confusing for a lot of people or, mm. or it, it, it like automatically connoted to people hearing that, that you had to live in suburbia and that you had to have a backyard. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that you don't have to do or have either of those things in order to essentially restore some habitat for wildlife. So probably about a decade ago, we shifted away from the, you know, the name, like naming this program backyard and immediately alienating anybody that lives in maybe an urban area or a really rural area. Right. And that this isn't for me. This is not what, you know, what I can do. Also, I, I'm not even joking when I tell you that probably 
you know, dozens of times over the years, I heard from people saying, oh, I've got this really great pollinator garden, but it's in my front yard. So it doesn't really count. <laughs> right. I'm like, no, like it's not that literal, right? So anyway, we shifted away from, from a place-based name that alienated lots and lots of people, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of backyard habitat to focusing on the action. And the action of course is planting native plants because native plants are the foundation of wildlife habitat anywhere, right? Out in the wilderness, but also in our cities and our towns and our neighborhoods, right? right? And that if we all do that action, planting for wildlife, specifically the native plants that they need to survive, well, then we can actually begin to give back a little bit of this space that we've dominated, that we bashed all the other species out with our pavement and our lawns and our pesticides and our non-native plants, right? So, and, and that's true, even in the middle of, you know, dense cities or again, out in the country or, you know, the typical kind of suburban backyard. So, I think that's important framing of this because mm-hmm. we don't want to be exclusionary, exclusionary with this. We that was actually one of my questions too. Okay. Like, what do you, what do you think backyard habitat is? And I, I'm actually kind of surprised that it's suburban habitat because I would think like when we were working with our camera traps on schools, a lot of the schools who wanted to participate thought they had to have like these really like big schoolyards with surrounded by woods. And most of our schools were in suburbia and, you know, we caught lots of interesting wildlife on camera. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, the, the concept is viable anywhere mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and we'll, we'll get back to your question about, you know, sort of <laughs> what the science says, but, but before we do that, just to kind of unpack what this is all about. I mean, the, the core concept that, that the National Wildlife Federation kind of built this garden for wildlife program and movement and everything is, is really sort of biology 101. You know, what, what, what do animals, what does wildlife need to survive? And they essentially need four things natural sources of food, everything needs to eat, a water source, you know, most species need to drink, birds need to bathe, some animals are actually aquatic and live in the water, cover, you know, shelter from, from the elements or places to hide from predators, or if they're a predator, places to, you know, hide from their prey. And then the fourth one oftentimes gets called like sort of space or resources. We, we kind of hone in on like the life cycle of the animals and we call this fourth component of habitat places to raise young, which is kind of an all-encompassing thing for, you know, just the resources that wildlife need to perpetuate their species. So, you know, whatever they need to be able to, you know, find a mate, engage in courtship, dig a den, build a nest, lay eggs, you know, to successfully raise that next generation. And I think this is what sets it off from just sort of like, you know, putting out a bird feeder. That sure, that'll like attract some birds to your yard, but, you know, feeders aren't habitat. Feeders are, you know, kind of a nice little supplement, but if we're not doing and, and creating these spaces that are going to allow wildlife populations, you know, to thrive and to reproduce mm-hmm. and sustain, but it's not really helping in the big conservation picture, right? So, so those four things, food, water, cover, places to raise young, I mean, all wildlife species need them in one way, mm-hmm. shape, or form. So we just kind of took that, you know, sort of bio, wildlife biology 101 that you would get, you know, if you were studying to become a wildlife manager and applied it to this sort of the human landscape, right? So how do you apply those four things? And the beauty of it is that there's an infinite number of ways that you could provide each of those four components of habitat, depending on where you are. So if you are, you know, in a in sort of a typical backyard, you know, you have, you could do it in a certain way, but if you're in a, in a very urban environment, you might adapt it and do slightly different things. If you are in an environment where kids are present, you know, like sort of the schoolyard habitat concept, which is a whole other branch of this that the National yeah. Wildlife Federation has been really into. You know, there's considerations, you know, if you live, well, I'll, I'll give you a specific example. So one thing that we always talk about as a great way that you can provide this element of cover for wildlife is building a brush pile, you know, sort of recycling mm-hmm. fallen limbs and things like that, and building this sort of natural woody debris that you might find out in the woods somewhere and these things really do become wildlife hotels. You know, I've seen all sorts of critters in them, you know, everything from chipmunks to, to wrens to snakes, you know, groundhogs, foxes, even sometimes, sometimes they even use them as places to raise young too. But I like that term. I'm going to use that wildlife hotel. Yeah. Right. I mean, different animals living in different, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. but you know, when I'm giving my talks about this, say in California or places out West where fire is a concern, like I'm saying like, well, obviously like you probably don't want to build a giant yeah. brush pile, fuel pile on your property because of where you live. You know, if you're in the Pacific Northwest or the upper North Northeast where it's fairly humid, mm-hmm. it's probably not a big deal, right? Or Florida or so, so the, the, the flexibility built within the, that core concept, I think it's just so great. It allows people to, 
to apply these things and create these wildlife habitat gardens, you know, based on native plants, but having some of these other features, no matter where they live, no matter how much space they have. And it really allows people to kind of celebrate the regional diversity that we have in ecosystems. So, you know, mm -hmm. when you do this in Arizona, it's gonna, you follow the same principles, but it's gonna look radically different yeah. than if you're in South Carolina, uh, than if you're in Kansas, right? And so it's just like, I don't know how much of this was thought out back in the early seventies when we launched this program, but in hindsight, looking back at it, it really, I think it's one of the reasons why the program has been so resilient and why it's bigger than ever. And we're investing even more in it at the National Wildlife Federation as a way of just engaging people right where they are with something that makes them happy and that actually right. is conservation and makes a difference. Right. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is it really does make a difference. And that's what some of these studies are showing. Before we get into the, the studies, could you talk about what somebody in a really urban environment could do? Like if they live in an apartment, what, what could they do to help wildlife? Sure. Yeah. So, so first and foremost, you might not even have your own space. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. if you live in, a, in, a, in an urban environment, a lot of folks, like you said, live in apartments. They don't even have a yard to work in. But mm -hmm. container gardening can be a really great way to, to, to go, right? So maybe you have a you know, sort of a, a little balcony or a deck or you know a veranda or whatever on your off of your apartment that you can put some you know some containers of just some native perennials you know that are going to provide nectar mm -hmm. to butterflies and bees that will once the, those insects pollinate those flowers they'll turn into seed heads which become a natural food source for lots of different bird species. You know, maybe some of those plants serve as caterpillar host plants. That's places to raise young, you know? You put a bird mm -hmm. bath out and you've pretty much got everything covered there, right? And, and so, you know, even if you don't have that though, there are a lot of opportunities within the urban environment for people to get involved in just sort of general gardening activities, right? So if you don't have your own garden space, check out and see what the community garden network is like where you live. I mean, most mm -hmm. cities have a pretty, you know, pretty big network of, of, of community gardens. You know, there's even just sort of those little pocket gardens that spring up, you know, in, in the, the vacant lot down at the end of the block or whatever. I mean, gorilla gardening, I've heard a term, you know, where you kind of <laughs> just plant stuff in, in some of these places. But there's a lot of opportunities to get involved at, at that community level in urban areas. There's also rooftops. A lot of people have access mm -hmm. to the, the rooftop of their building and do a lot of vegetable gardening and things like that. And, you know, you could do that and incorporate some native plants and then suddenly it becomes a wildlife habitat. And you would be surprised at how much wildlife can make it up to the top of a, of a fairly large building. I remember back in the days of my Animal Planet series, the Backyard Habitat series, we did a whole episode all about green roofs. And we went to Chicago, which, you know, was one of the first cities that was investing a lot in this sort of concept of doing green roofs, which is essentially instead of just having like your typical building roof, you know, usually like asphalt or something, shingles or, you know, some kind of mm -hmm. uh, just sort of dead space, right, in terms of natural habitat is planting those spaces. And there's a whole way of going about doing it. So water doesn't leak through and you got to pick the right plants or whatever. But at any rate, Chicago City Hall has this huge green roof ecosystem and it's 13 stories up. And so we, we went there for the Animal Planet Backyard Habitat series to do a segment. And I remember thinking like, what are we really gonna see up here? And I was shocked. Like when we got up there, it was teeming with insects of all different kinds, you know, oh, dragonflies, cool. bees, uh, beetles, all sorts of stuff, birds, of course. So obviously, yeah, like a 13 story up habitat isn't gonna be accessible to deer, right? Right. <laughs> but it certainly is gonna be accessible and will support a lot of these, you know, this, this, this sort of invertebrate life, which is wildlife. A lot of people don't think of insects as right. wildlife, but they, they are, and they're important. And birds wildlife. too. And birds too, exactly. So, so I, I don't even, oh, you were talking about urban areas. I was like, where were we going with this? <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, there's a lot of different opportunities that are unique to the urban environment, you know, space considerations. But but again, there are solutions. Container gardening, rooftop gardening, community gardening are all really great ways that folks living in urban areas can get involved. And even if you do have a little bit of outdoor space, I, I my last house in down in Washington, D.C., typical city row house. So I had a little long, narrow backyard, which had a patio and a deck and everything on it. I had a strip that was about 13 feet long by about six feet wide. And I had mm -hmm. about two dozen species of native plants, 
both herbaceous oh, plants. Wow. But I also had some shrubs. I had some two different uh, native vine species. So I took advantage of the vertical habitat, which is another tip for any mm -hmm. small space. You know, don't just think this way, but think this way, right? And for folks that are listening, I'm expanding my hands up and down and left and right. But, you know, the idea that you can't create a wildlife garden because you don't have a lot of space isn't really true. Whatever space you have, you know, if you plant some natives, practice this sort of natural gardening, have a water source, you know, accounts. And again, I didn't have, you know, big mammals running around in my 13 by seven foot garden, but I had tons of pollinators and birds. You know, I had Carolina mantises, which are a declining insect species. They're being oh, wow. they're pushed out by the invasive Chinese mantis and the European praying mantis that have been introduced here, um, non-native species and more aggressive and larger, and they're suppressing the native species. I had those in my my garden in the middle of the city in DC. So this stuff really does work. I can say it, you know, anecdotally from personal experience. <laughs> you probably did have mammals. My my colleague Mike Cove, he camera traps in DC and they get lots of critters. So oh, you probably I, I just didn't they probably came out at night. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's funny, it's funny because I, I recently relocated uh, to just outside of New York City. I live in New Jersey now. And um, literally just yesterday, we put out some, they're not, I wouldn't call them camera traps because they're not, you know, sort of wildlife mm -hmm. camera traps. They're like home security cameras. And yeah. so we have a bunch of them. And I was like, you know what? I want to put some out in the yard and see what we see. And let me tell you, it is cottontail rabbit season. Literally all night long, my phone was going off with alerts <laughs> because the rabbits were like running around like crazy. So I'm sure I'm going to see, I mean, we've seen foxes in the neighborhood, yeah. raccoons, um, I haven't yet seen a possum yet, and I haven't seen a deer with my eyes, but I have seen their brows on my plants. So mm -hmm. I'm hoping to catch some of those with the camera, the camera trap, which I love that idea. I highly recommend anyone. Yeah, because no. you'd be surprised at what you catch. So you talked about invasive species a little bit. Do you recommend that people pull out the invasive plant species that are in their yards? Like my yard's a big mess. I know I have lots of invasives. So yeah. Should I do all this work and pull them out? Yeah, so, so great question. And, and I like the way that you frame that because one of the barriers that we found to people creating these wildlife habitat gardens is that they, they oftentimes feel overwhelmed. Yeah. And people think, oh, I've got to rip out my entire yard. I've got to spend all of this money. You know, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to start this. I don't know what to plant. I don't even know what's in, you know, the invasive plants and everything. And so my advice on that note is just, it's okay. Like everybody take a breath, <laughs> start small, right? I mean, you yeah. don't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to be a botanist or an ornithologist or a naturalist like me, you know, to do this, right? So give yourself a little bit of, leeway to just kind of learn you know the garden is never done that's one of the other reasons why I like framing this as a garden program mm -hmm. because if you're a gardener you know you're always tweaking and you're always adding and subtracting and digging this up and adding you know so I, I want to give per people permission to do that when you get into this idea of natural gardening and wildlife habitat gardening and native plant gardening so so the question of invasive plants I think it's important to start just by defining what we're talking about yeah right so so native species are you know, any organism that kind of evolved in whatever region you're in, right? And here mm -hmm. in the U.S., there's a few dozen different eco-regions. You know, there's different plant communities in each of them, different animal communities in each of them. And so the idea of, of wildlife habitat gardening is really centered on that core concept that wildlife need plants to survive, even if they're not herbivores, right? They, the, the plants are the bottom of that food web that feeds everything. Yeah, so the plants are the primary mm -hmm. producers. They make seeds and berries and nuts and nectar and, and leaves that animals eat. And then those animals get eaten by other animals and so on and so forth. So you can't have healthy wildlife populations unless you have healthy plant populations, right? And actually a lot of wildlife jobs like have to do with plants. I remember scanning the jobs and I'm like, we're all animal jobs. So I want to work and, with plants. <laughs> well, and frankly, you know, by the broadest definition, wildlife does include plants. Right, right. Yes, you know? it does. And so my, I have some of my, my colleagues who come from the plant world at the National Wildlife Federation and they're constantly, you know, yes, that is beating true. their drum. Like we're not just about animals, we're about <laughs> plants too. And, but so, but, but, but it's not just any plants that wildlife need. They need those native plants that their species co-evolved with and whose life cycle is related and interrelated with theirs. And more right. and more studies are coming out looking at that kind of connection. So to get into answer that question, at least partially, you know, we're finding in, in recent years, a lot more work is being done looking at the relationship between bees and plants, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, 
I think it's broadly understood that, that butterflies and moths, they start out life as caterpillars. And those caterpillars you know, have a different kind of food need and, 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 and habitat need than the adult butterflies or moths, which feed on flower nectar and some other things. But those caterpillars need to eat the leaves of plants. And through this process of, of long-term co-evolution, these butterfly and moth species have evolved immunity to the certain chemicals that plants produce specifically to keep insects from eating them, right? Mm -hmm. And the trade-off is that the caterpillars have immunity to just certain plants' toxins. You know, they can't be immune to everything. So they traded off a, a diet that means that they can feed on any leaf to, you know, as, as a generalist, which is the term, right? And they've mm -hmm. specialized in their diet. So all butterflies and moths, their caterpillars have what we call host plants. And these are the only plants that those caterpillars can eat. And that process happened, again, through the, in, the, the sinking up of, of just sort of the ecology of the plants and those butterfly species, right? Well, and again, that's broadly understood. And that's one of the things that we talk about with places to raise young. If you want to support butterflies, everybody wants to plant the pretty flowers, right? But you have to that feed the adults, but you also have to plant the caterpillar host plants, many of which are trees. You know, you mm -hmm. don't often think about, oh, I want to plant a butterfly garden, plant an oak tree. You know, mm -hmm. oaks, the genus Quercus is a caterpillar host plant here in North America for 557 species of butterflies and moths for their caterpillars. Oh. So, so that's kind of understood. And that's some of the, the research that Dr. Doug Tallamy, um, who is out of the University of Delaware, has been, has been doing and, and promoting. He's written a bunch of popular you know, books about this. We were working with him at the National Wildlife Federation, trying to get people to plant more of these caterpillar host plants. And again, non-native plants don't do that job. The caterpillars can't mm -hmm. eat them. So similarly, there's more research, and this is where I was going with this when we just started, more and more research looking at our native bee species and their connections to the native uh, flora, to the native plants. So again, this is a subject of a whole other talk that I give called everything you think you know about bees is wrong. <laughs> and that's because most of us only know about the honeybee. Yeah. You know, honeybee, you know, is, is sort of shorthand for, for all bees, but a lot of people don't realize that globally there's, there's something like 20,000 bee species. Right here in North America, we've got somewhere around 4,000. And most of them are completely different than honeybees. So it's yeah. a much truer statement. These are true statements about the majority of bees. Bees don't live in hives. Bees don't have queens. Bees don't make honey. Bees don't sting. Bees aren't black and yellow. So like those five things that every kid learns is like <laughs> universal for bee are not true for the vast majority of bee species, right? So one of the key differences is that, again, they're not social. So again, they don't have queens, they don't have hives, they don't make honey. That's all social bees. Now our bumblebees are social bees. You know, they follow that pattern, but most of our bees, something like 90% of the bee species, of these 20,000 bee species on this planet are solitary. Right, so it's there. There's it's one individual female bee. She mates, and what she needs is a, a tunnel, either in the ground, which is the majority of species, but some species will find tunnels in dead or dying wood, old plant stems, things like that. And they lay an egg. They give it a little ball of nectar and pollen, and they seal it off, making a little chamber. And they'll fill up this tunnel with a whole series of these little egg chambers, where the baby hatches, the egg hatches, the larva feeds on the pollen and nectar, pupates, and then oftentimes the next year will emerge as the adult and begins the cycle again. So very, very different than what we think of as bees and what their habitats needs are and everything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like honeybees, you know, the, the, the adult bees are out there flying around drinking flower nectar, but they're gathering pollen. And I, you know, I was just mentioning the pollen is what they use to provision their babies, their, their larvae. Mm -hmm. And honeybees do that as well. But with our native bees, what we're finding is somewhere in the neighborhood of like, 25, maybe even 30% of them are pollen specialists. So they, the, these pollen specialist native bees, thousands of species probably, are, they can only exist and their species can only thrive in environments where very specific native plants that they co-evolved with mm -hmm. exist. And if those plants are not there, you know, if it's just, again, pavement and, and lawns and non-native plants, you know, planted ornamentally, these bees can't get the pollen that they need to feed their babies and their populations disappear. So that 
that's an example of some research that's coming out now. I can't quote exact studies off the top mm-hmm. of my head, but but if you Google around, you can you can find some of this stuff. And it's something that we're working at at the National Wildlife Federation to help people. So we're working with some of the folks who are in this space doing the research, the actual scientists, and trying to come up with some plant lists, for example, so that we can share those with people to be able to say like, these are the, the plants, or at least the, the genera of plants that, that you can look for in your area at that level so that you can begin supporting the bees. And we've already done that, by the way, with the caterpillar host plants. So mm-hmm. if people are interested in getting a list of the top caterpillar host plants broken out by herbaceous plants and woody plants, so like trees and shrubs, ranked in the order of the numbers of species of butterflies and moths that they support as caterpillar host plants. You can just Google native plant finder. If you do that, the very first hit that comes up is the National Wildlife Federation's native plant finder. And so this is based on the research of Dr. Doug Tallamy and his research team. So we were able to work with him and we got a grant from the US Forest Service to fund this work. And we did what he had originally done for the mid-Atlantic states, um, for Delaware, again, a decade or so ago. Um, He developed this kind of list now we have it available nationally. And so how it works is that you put your zip code in and based on the actual data that Dr. Tallamy and his team, you know, sort of dove into and coalesced, will tell you for your zip code, what are the best native plants to serve as caterpillar host plants. And when you overlay the fact that 96% of our birds, our upland terrestrial birds, or just you know, our backyard birds, rely on insects as the primary food source for their babies, you know, that like the, this, this list is the best list of plants, native plants for butterflies, but also the birds that rely on them as a food source. So that exists right now. We're working right now to build lists of plants that will address this same kind of connection with those pollinator or that uh, the pollen specialist bees so that people can begin to get, you know, these very sort of detailed overlapping lists. So this plant is a caterpillar host plant. It's going to support the you know, a pollen specialist bee, and it's gonna feed the birds. Like that would be a real winner of a plant to put in your yard. And we recognize that that information is really hard to come by if it exists at all, especially not on the consumer level. So when we're telling people plant natives to support wildlife, people always say, well, what are they? And where do I get them? And so yeah. we're working right now. And I do wanna talk about something else too. And I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'm gonna stop and let you get a breath in. But- <laughs> You're okay, you can keep talking. It makes my job easy. Okay. I get very into all of this, as you can tell. So in addition to putting out those informational resources, the National Wildlife Federation just launched something that is totally rad that I have been wanting us to do for a really long time. And that's actually getting into the native plant kind of retail space. You know, we're a nonprofit organization. So, so it's kind of difficult. Like we're, you know, we're not a for-profit entity um, per se, but, but we, and I take no credit for this. It's all my colleagues that, that spent a lot of time over the last few years putting together a retail, an online mail order, like curated native plant line. So it, it's, it's, it, you just, it's gardenforwildlife.org. And what we've done is used all of the data available to us on everything we've been talking about and picked collections of plants that people can order that were that are designed that like the plant species collectively in those those different sets of plants were designed to support the most numbers of our native bee pollen specialists or, uh, to serve as caterpillar host plants and then again feed the birds. So a lot of people have I mean people have been asking us for this for for decades ever since I've been working on this. Like, can you make it easy for me? Like, can I just buy? Like, tell us what we need to buy. So you know this might not be if you're really already hardcore into native plants and native plant gardening, you know, you probably already know where the best sources for your like local ecotypes are, which of course are always the best choice. But these are native plant species. They're not cultivars that we're selling. It's regional, obviously. And right now it's only available in 20 states. It's kind of the upper north, upper Midwest into the Northeast and uh, down as far south as Virginia. And obviously we're gonna be expanding into the Southeast mm-hmm. and the Southwest and the Pacific Northwest and the, you know, the Great Plains states in the coming years. But, but you know, these are plants that you can feel good about planting. They're ornamental. They kind of check off all the boxes for like, you know, mm-hmm. the quote unquote garden, which is important to a lot of people, you know, function, beauty and that kind of thing. But they're coming with our guarantee that they're actually the right plants to support wildlife. 
And, and so I'm really excited about it. Again, we just launched it in April of 2021. So it's brand new. We're hoping everybody oh, cool. check it out. You go online, you pick which collection you want. We have sets of six plants and sets of 12 plants. They will come to you delivered in, your, in, a, in a beautiful packaging that is sustainable. It's made out of recycled materials. We give you sample garden plans and a bunch of other informational resources. So we're trying to make it really easy for people to get started doing this and to just begin to learn a little bit about what some of these plants are. And hopefully it'll be successful and we'll be able to really grow it, offer more plant species, offer more regions in the coming years. So hopefully um, everybody listening will go check that out. It's gardenforwildlife.org. Yeah. And I'll, I'll include that in the show notes too. That's a great idea. And one of my, you actually answered one of my questions or kind of answered one of my questions. But when I started looking at native plants, like you can't just go to Home Depot and get them. So where, right. where can people get them besides this, this resource? Yeah. If so it's not, it's not, if it's not in one of their States. Sure. Yeah. So, so, you know, going back to, we were kind of defining what a native species is, right? It's a native to your mm-hmm. eco region. And that means it's kind of evolved to the environmental conditions that are natural to your area. Right. So the soil types, the, the, the climate, the weather patterns, you know, the, the precipitation, all of that stuff. You know, so a plant native to you know, coastal Virginia is going to be very different than a plant you know, native to, to eastern Kansas. Right. So mm-hmm. just I think that that's people kind of get that intuitively. And so but even within native plants, the best option is to plant the, the from, from kind of stock that comes from your region. So for example, we were just having a discussion at the National Wildlife Federation about, about you know, certain milkweed species that, you know, the seed source is in Wisconsin. And when they, you plant those in Texas, sometimes they don't do well, even though it's the same species and Texas and Wisconsin are within the native range. And so that's what we mean when we say local ecotype. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the local genetic um, diversity that are specifically kind of adapted to your region, even if it's native in a wide space. So, you know, we always, from a scientific ecological point of view, you know, tell people that that's the best option. But here's the rub, is that those don't exist for sale, right? Oh, okay. Right. So, <laughs> but, but it's important. I mean, I want people to understand that, that those are, that that's the best choice, right? And, and, you know, you can, you know, go out and collect seeds, and cultivate them yourself, right? If you see native plants and, you know, mm-hmm. take a couple seeds, you know, being respectful to not, you know, steal from nature, if you will. I mean, that's an option if you're into this. And th- I-, I shouldn't say that they're not available, but at scale, they're not available. So there are lo- very local, you know, native plant growers that are running native plant specialty nurseries that might be able to offer you your local ecotype. But generally speaking, broad brush stroke at scale all across America, it's just not something, it's, we're, not, we're not there yet, right? And so one of the goals of the National Wildlife Federation is to work with the horticulture industry to get us there. It's probably a long ways away, though, before we can really be able to offer that kind of science-based, ecological-based plant program. But it doesn't mean that folks shouldn't seek those opportunities out. Check with your local native plant society, Google native plant nursery near me. You might be able to find some of that. So that is the most ideal, but also the most difficult to do. So kind of along this continuum, all the way at the other end is, is what we have now, which is nothing but lawns and non-native plants that quite frankly might as well be plastic. You know, we, th- this mm. is a challenge that we have because people see these beautiful landscapes and gardens and they're like, oh, this is wonderful. It's green, it's growing, it's great for the environment. But, you know, a lot of our conventional gardens and landscapes are not, you know, mm. they don't provide for anything because again, they're made up of non-native plants that don't have the ecological connections. So in between is where most people are, right? You know, having a true ecological restoration on your property with local ecotype on the one end, and then the other end is all non-natives not supporting anything. So in the middle is where we are now. And so you oftentimes can go to regular, you know, bigger nurseries that sell all sorts of plants and more and more, they all have native plant sections, right? So are they the local ecotype? Probably not. And oftentimes they are cultivars, which speaking of research, there's, there's a lot of research happening now looking at cultivars. And for folks not familiar with that term, um, a cultivar is a cultivated variety, cultivar, right? And so, what, and, and these are the ones, like if you've ever bought a plant at the garden center and you read the name, it'll say, you know, white oak, um, Quercus alba, you know, 
I don't know, big boy or something like that. Vegetable mm -hmm. gardeners are, I think, probably even more familiar because big boy is a kind of is a cultivar of a tomato. And that just means that it's, you know, it's been developed by the horticulture industry and they can reproduce it by cloning, you know, tissue culture or whatever, or even the seeds sometimes. And you get a, like the same product, right? Over and over mm -hmm. and over again. And so cultivars are great for the garden industry because they can provide, again, kind of a reliable product. However, what we're finding is that a lot of times cultivars of, of garden plants, ornamental garden plants, you know, the, the hort industry specifically picks them for first and foremost, beauty and function in the landscape. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times as these are developed for those traits, then inadvertently the value to wildlife diminishes. So taking a, a native plant, you know, a naturally occurring individual native plant that has extra you know, flowers on it. You know, just, I'm making this mm -hmm. up. Somebody in horticulture finds that and like, this is great. This could, you know, it's a native plant and we could sell this because people are looking for pretty plants with lots of flowers. So they, you know, clone that plant and make a gajillion of them. But then we find out when you actually do the, the studies on the value of that specific individual plant that is now, there's a billion of them out there as cultivars, like the nectar value isn't there or the shape of the flower is no longer accessible to the butterflies that need to, you know. So there's these things that are happening that we don't perceive because we don't see an ultraviolet and we don't have a proboscis the way that some of these yeah. wildlife are that sometimes with cultivars, again, we're finding that we, you know, we've either picked individual plants to become the, the source of the cultivar that are lacking or in the process of us breeding and developing them, we have changed something about that plant that makes it no longer as valuable to wildlife. So there are, you know, there are, there's more and more kind of data coming out looking at that. So, so the caution is, you know, try to, you know, it doesn't mean cultivars are all bad. It's just, we want people to be aware of it. And so if you're going to plant a cultivar of a native plant, you know, read the plant tag, it'll have the, the, the common name and the Latin name and then the cultivar name in quotations. Um, and it's usually something fanciful and just, you know, try to stick with things that look like the species, like look like the version of the plant growing in the wild. The next step on the continuum is, you know, just sticking with the straight species. So don't, you know, not planting cultivars. And that's what the National Wildlife Federation is doing with our native plant program. You know, we, 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 we're, we're offering the straight species, not cultivars. So we know that they are, you know, as alike to their kin growing in the wild as, as you can get. And so they should, you know, there shouldn't be any issues with them in terms of the, the you know, their value to wildlife. Again, they're not going to necessarily be the local ecotype, but I think you have to look at it this way. If the alternate or the alternative is people planting, you know, not choosing the non-local uh, ecotype because that's not the most, you know, sort of ecologically correct thing to do. The other option is planting non-native plants and lawn, which is 10 times worse, right? right? So we're, we're, we're going to get there. In my 21 years at the National Wildlife Federation, I've seen the evolution happening in the garden industry. And so I think we're gonna get there, hopefully in the next couple decades where you will be able to go to your local nursery and buy like the local ecotype or at least buy native plants. So, you know, slowly but surely we're changing things. We're trying to use the market, honestly, to drive this. Mm -hmm. And this is what I always tell people is be a consumer activist, right? Mm -hmm. We can preach Till we're blue in the face about, oh, it's really important to plant natives and plant local and blah, 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 blah. But when customers walk in or call their local nursery and say, we want to spend our money on this stuff, like, right. and, and not just one person, but you know, 200 people do it, then suddenly the industry starts to pay attention and we start to see movement. So you can use the market, you know, as a force of good, but you have to speak up as a consumer. So everyone should call their local Home Depot and say they want native plants. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize it was so nuanced. Wow. That's, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. And, and, you know, I sometimes, I hesitate even to always go into that because for the average person, that is kind of very nuanced. And again, I don't want people to feel overwhelmed by this, you know, which is exactly yeah. why we tried to make it very simple for folks who are just looking to get started for something turnkey. They don't have to think about it. They don't have to do research. They can just log on and be like, I'm going to pick the shade garden and we're going to send like right to your door, you know, six different species of plants that are going to thrive in your shady conditions that are native to your region that are going to have three seasons of bloom time. That's another important thing to think about is like, you know, don't just plant stuff that blooms in the summer because they're, 
There are mm -hmm. animals that need a pollen and nectar source in the spring and in the fall. And so, so we've done all that work for you with this, this native plant program at the National Wildlife Federation. So, and certainly again, what we hope is that people are going to, you know, buy these collections, start planting, get more familiar, and then go seek out that local native plant nursery and, you know, find the local ecotypes and continue to add to their garden that way. Yeah. Something is better than nothing. That's the way I look at yeah, it. And I, I wouldn't even say it that way. Cause that makes it sound like it's not that great. <laughs> it's pretty fantastic. Okay. Compared, but <laughs> yeah. you know, I think it's important for people to have that full context and it's something that we're working towards. We're working to get to this, this place where it's easy for people to do the right thing ecologically in their mm -hmm. spaces, um, in their yards, in their gardens, in their cities and towns and neighborhoods. And it's, you know, it's going to take time. And I think we have some, you know, again, compared to when I started in this space, like I said, a couple decades ago, I mean, we've come leaps and bounds ahead of where we were back then. What is your recommendation about feeding birds? Like, I know it's not good to feed wildlife. And recently there was an outbreak of salmonella through bird feeders. Yeah. So what's your thought on that? Yeah. You know, so, so bird feeding is like anything else, right? Like you, if you're going to do it, you have to do it correctly and responsibly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, here's the thing about bird feeders is that bird feeders are not habitat, right? Wildlife don't need a handout. Right. They need habitat and habitat starts with plants. That's why the National mm -hmm. Wildlife Federation's program isn't the, you know, the, 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 the backyard bird feeder program. It's the garden for wildlife program because the emphasis really is on the natural habitat. But mm -hmm. You know, birds don't use feeders as a primary food source. They use them as a supplement to the natural foods that they find in the landscape. Mm -hmm. And only a handful of bird species will actually use a bird feeder, right? So again, if you want to help birds, the best thing to do is plant lots of natives, build a food web, you know, support the caterpillars that they feed their babies um, and that kind of thing. And you'll provide for a lot more bird species that way, because again, not all bird species will even visit a bird feeder. And you never have to refill native plants either. That's the other plus. That said, bird feeders have their place, right? Bird feeders have really gotten a lot of people interested in birds and backyard birding. And, you know, I, I kind of think of bird feeding as kind of like a gateway activity, right? Like yeah. you put out a bird feeder, you start seeing the bird, you get excited, you want to do more, right? And so, but the key is doing it the right way, right? So my advice is if you're going to put out a bird feeder, nothing wrong with that. Again, the birds don't become dependent on them. They, they don't stop their migration, you know, based on the research. And so they can give a little bit of a boost in, in, in really tough times. There's some research out there looking at chickadees, for example, in really, really bad winters in the upper Midwest, the survival rate of chickadees that had access to feeders was a little bit higher. But generally speaking, the feeling is that, you know, feeders are, again, kind of a snack, a supplement. They're really in many ways more for us because they give us a wildlife yeah. watching opportunity. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But number one, don't overfeed. So don't have like 50 feeders on an eighth of an acre. That can <laughs> cause crowding, stress, spread of disease. It can attract non-target species like mammals, which as you were just mentioning, like bird feeding is good for birds because again, they don't really alter their natural behavior. They still eat their natural foods, mm -hmm. et cetera. That's not true for mammals, right. right? Mammals stop eating their natural foods. They do become dependent upon us. They become habituated to humans. They start approaching us, you know, and it, it, you know, even if it did happen, you know, a chickadee is not going to hurt you, but a raccoon or a fox or a bear. They don't, be, they or, don't become that aggressive. Exactly. Or an <laughs> alligator. Cause you know, pe some people think it's cool to feed alligators. Yeah. Like, so anyway, don't overfeed, don't feed mammals and you got to keep those feeders clean. And that means periodically, you know, emptying them, disinfecting them, and if there is an outbreak of any kind of disease that's spread by feeders, just take the feeders down for a while, right? Mm -hmm. Clean them. In fact, I just did that. I, I have a couple bird feeders. And just yesterday, I, you know, the feeder was empty. I have a hopper style feeder. Those are the sort of ones that kind of look like a little house. And, you know, I took the opportunity to take it down, scrub it in hot soap and water, let it fully dry before I put it back out. So yeah, but, but you know, bird feeding is not a requirement. That's the other thing. People think, oh, I have to put up. You don't have to do that. Plant natives, let mother nature do the work for you. And you'll still have lots and lots of birds around and you'll still be able to see and enjoy them. They won't come to the exact spot every single day in your yard the way they do with a bird feeder. But, you know, it's you, you, you can support the birds in other ways than just having a feeder. Okay, great. We, I want to respect your time. We only have like two minutes left. So can you just tell people what's something they should stop doing in their, in their back or front yards for wildlife? Stop spraying pesticides. Yeah. Or spreading pesticides or using pesticides. Of any? 
Yeah, I mean, look, mm-hmm. like pesticides are, they're not good or bad inherently, they're tools, right? Mm-hmm. And there are instances where for conservation purposes, pesticides are really important. Controlling invasive non-native species, sometimes protecting um, endangered species, we have to use some of these, these, these products, right? But I think, you know, agriculture, you know, there's an argument to be made that they can be beneficial in agriculture as well as harmful in agriculture, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a knee-jerk kind of thing out there, organic gardening, like no chemicals, chemicals bad. And I think like anything else, a more, you know, nuanced approach is kind of the reality to it. Mm-hmm. But with that said, for the home and garden, I just don't think that the problems that we face in most cases warrant going to the most extreme level and yeah. that's using pesticides, right? There are many tried and true organic gardening techniques that we can all be utilizing before we resort to, you know, sort of blanket nuking our entire properties, right? And so that everything from simple things, like if you have, you know, pests in your vegetable garden, handpick them. You know, drop them in some soapy water and those pests will die, right? Whether they're caterpillars or, or beetles or whatever, you know, and so there, there's things like that that you can do. The big thing that I'm seeing right now in the last couple of years is this proliferation of services and companies that are like broadcast spraying pesticides to kill mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Probably seen the signs of people and they say, oh, we're beef safe and oh, we're EPA approved. Right. Well, there have been some studies on honeybees, which, as we've already talked about, are completely different than most other bee species. So they might be, quote unquote, acceptably safe for honeybees, which hide in their hives at night. But other bees don't do that. Right. They're out in the vegetation and you would have to only be spraying at night to make it even safer honeybees. And I've I witnessed in my own neighborhood, you know, these trucks coming in the middle of the day with these tanks on their back, gassing the entire property. And people think, oh, like it's EPA approved. That means it must yeah. be safe for everything. No, folks, it's not true. In fact, if you Google the National Wildlife Federation or go to our blog, it's blog.nwf.org. Um, I helped write a series of blogs specifically on the impacts of mosquitoes and mosquito spraying. And so folks can check that out for more some more specific stuff, including links to some of the actual science on some of the um, side effects of these. You know, these even botanicals, right? Botanical pesticides are still pesticides. You know, if you douse a bee in, you know, in lemon eucalyptus oil, it's still going to die. You know, right. <laughs> it's not just because it's from a plant doesn't mean it's like, oh, all happy and, and safe. Right. So just be a savvy consumer with this stuff. Do a little bit of reading. Try to focus on other alternatives with mosquitoes. Eliminate their breeding areas. Your clogged gutters are like a number one place mm-hmm. with little pockets of standing water. Wear repellent you know, use a fan on your deck or your patio. Mosquitoes are not strong flyers that can actually blow them away. You know, all of, none of that requires killing every other living insect in your yard, which is what these Mm -hmm. mosquito sprays do. So generally speaking, broadcast statement, avoid pesticides in your home and garden. Well, thank you so much for being here. I could talk to you more and more about your separate talks and other questions. We didn't get to everything today, but that's totally fine. I really enjoyed talking to you about, about, not backyard wildlife or backyard habitat. Garden what should I call it? Garden, <laughs> garden for wildlife. You, you okay. can call it backyard habitat. But then you have, <laughs> just have to explain to people that you don't have to have a backyard to do it. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate being here and I'm happy to come back. I could geek out with you like all day long on a million different subjects. So just uh, anytime, let me know. Thank you so much, David, for speaking with us. I really have to have him on the podcast again. He is so interesting. He's been on tons of different TV shows. Actually, one day over over quarantine, I think, I got really into RuPaul's Drag Race, and I went back from the beginning and watched them. And they had episodes, or they had a, a, a stream of videos that were cut from the filming. And I saw David. I was so excited. I was like, oh my god, you've been on RuPaul's Drag Race. And we tweeted in between, or we tweeted about that for a little bit. So that was super fun, and I'm super jealous of him because that is seriously one of my favorite shows. Anyway, I digress. Thank you so much, David, for being on. I hope you found this useful. Check out the Native Plant Finder. That's in, that's the website made by the National Wildlife Federation. It is so helpful for, for planning your garden, planning what plants you need to plant. I'm saying a lot of plants. And remember to just get started. It's okay if you just plant one plant. Start small. You never know how many caterpillars or insects or birds you might be helping by starting to create that environment. 
So David is all over the social media. You can find him at D. M-I-Z-E-J-E-W-S-K-I. He's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and he just started a YouTube channel. And you can find the National Wildlife Federation at NWF on Twitter and at National Wildlife on Instagram. And of course, they also have Facebook and I'm sure YouTube too. All of the links are in the show notes. So if you want to work on finding your native species, then then head over to fancyscientist.com. Thanks again, and I hope you guys have an amazing day. Bye. If you liked this episode, care about wildlife, care about conservation, or know somebody who is interested in going into wildlife biology careers, please share this episode. You can also rate and review my podcast that really helps people find it. My goal is to spread messages of conservation and kindness for wildlife and to help people navigate wildlife biology careers. Rating and reviewing my podcast really helps other people find it. If you have questions or show ideas, you can find me at fancyscientist.com. My social media handles are at fancyscientist. On Instagram, there's an underscore between fancy and scientist. You can also send an email to hello at fancyscientist.com. If you're an aspiring wildlife biologist, ecologist, or zoologist, you can join me every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Facebook Live, where I answer different career questions. You can also ask me questions on the spot. I'm here for you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I am so grateful for you. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other.